you so much. God bless you. You can be seated. It is wonderful to be here and we've been looking forward to this for some time and I cannot tell you how much we've fallen in love with your pastor and his family, how much we think of them and really have developed a friendship. It, just recently we were together in Malawi, Africa a few months ago. Before that his father was with me in Ethiopia and uh, we just have a high regard uh, for the Yanceys, we just considered them to be just premier people and I can tell you as much as I travel in different places and speak in churches in different places of the United States you are blessed to have a pastoral family like this one I can tell you amen it's the truth and uh, and be thankful for it we are so privileged to be here and to be able to take a moment to connect with you at Timber Creek concerning what we consider to be a partnership that's going to have significant impact for the future, real strategic impact, where your participation in that process, I think, is going to have great eternal dividends. As you know, as, um, as Pastor Jeremy mentioned, my focus is Africa primarily. And even though we're engaged in different parts of the world today, my heart beats for Africa. It beats for a continent that when I was in sixth grade was first exposed to it with a certain stereotype um, as we've all come to know as the Western world. And I remember being in sixth grade and opening up a book on geography and this particular, this particular chapter was on Africa in bold print in the heading it said Africa. And the very first sentence of that first paragraph was in quotation marks, Africa is known as the dark continent, exclamation point, close quote. And I remember in my young mind thinking, why do they call this place the dark continent? I have never really been exposed or heard of any other place being called dark. And of course, as I grew and experienced and matured, and then as I began to work in Africa and raise our family there, we came to know that from a Western perspective, Africa is known as the dark continent because probably there's no other people on the face of the earth that has ever known the degree of suffering and marginalization historically as the people of Africa. And it is true. The realities that seem to plague this continent are numerous. And if we were to look a map of Africa, you'll notice that it is an enormous place. And this is one of the reasons why strategic impact here and your partnership is so important. I mean, it's a continent of over 54 countries. Did you know that you can put the United States, Western Europe, Australia, India, and China inside of Africa and you still have not covered its landmass? It takes me as long to fly from the tip at the southern point of Cape Town to Ouagadougou in Burkina Faso up into the northern exterior which is still not even close to being to the north of the continent as it does for me to fly from New York to London. We're talking about 1.2 billion people that are very diverse. When you talk about Africa, you cannot put it as a monolithic. It is so different from one country to another country. And all of the images, though, that you've come to know about it, yes, many of them are true. The truth is, is that Africa is a dark continent in many ways and remains that way. From endemic poverty to the issues of radical Islam and its expansion to what we find in corrupt governments to tribal warfare to genocide to famine and disease and places that I just came from just a week ago along the Somali border which is probably one of the most resistant places on earth to the gospel and highly volatile and dangerous and yet the 
other side of the coin tells a different picture that many times we in the West are not aware of. And that is, is that the dark continent has seen a great light and that light is Jesus. And the expansion of the gospel in Africa today is actually mind-blowing. We know that statisticians and people like myself as missiologists who watch and, and take the data and look at the church and at the growth of the expansion of the church today, we are now aware that there is no other place on earth despite the volatility, despite the marginalization, despite the challenges of the endemic poverty and the disease and the famine, there is no other place on earth that while that kind of condition exists that the church is growing faster simultaneously. Did you know that just 20 years ago in our own movement, just our movement, we only had 2.3 million people that identified within our movement across the continent. And 20 years later, we now have 18 million. Where there were over 12,000 local congregations, mostly that were around 100, just scattered along in membership from here to there in rural places. Today, there are over 73,000 local congregations in sub-Sahara Africa alone. And that's the tip of the iceberg. In fact, if you were to read journals today in anthropology and sociology, they would tell you, all the way from the University of Pennsylvania across to Berkeley, that there is a staggering amount of Christian growth occurring in Africa today. And these are coming from people that are not even believers in Christ. And they are amazed at the data that they see. And why is that? It's because the gospel has a way of overcoming every situation, no matter how dark it is. And we sang about it this morning, that there's hope in darkness. And that's why Africa's Hope, a ministry that I oversee, is probably, in my mind, one of the more significant ministry engagement points that's taking place today. And that's because when you have a church that's growing so rapidly, the only way to maintain the health of that growth and to ensure you continue to grow is to be able to produce enough leadership that will come along to give vision and to give stability for that movement. Right now, my job is to in, engage in, and interact with over 352 training institutions on every level across the continent of Africa. That's 15,000 students annually in those programs. And our goal, talking about dreaming big, is to take that amount of students of 15,000 annually and grow that to 30,000 annually in the next five years. And we're gonna do it. And to be able to ensure that every point of Africa is reached with the gospel, which leads me to this. The great challenge ahead of us is what I like to call 867. 867 are the number of unreached people groups, distinct tribes of people that today still exist in Africa that have never in their life received a meaningful witness of the gospel, nor does a church like Timber Creek or any other church exist in their village, township, or city. That means that there are 340 million people in sub-Saharan Africa today, that despite all of the growth that's happening and all of the leadership that's beginning to occur, have never once in their life had an adequate witness of Jesus. Now, I want you to think about what that means. Because I don't know what that means. I can't identify with that at all. 
In fact, there are times when I'm in places like Somalia where there is absolutely no above-the-surface recognizable church officially that even exists in the entire country. And what it feels like to walk in those places knowing that there's not a single believer anywhere is mind-boggling to me. I'm a third-generation Pentecostal. My sons and our fourth generation. My grandson is fifth generation. I have never, ever known what it means once in my life to have an experience where I do not have access to the gospel. But there are millions of people today in Africa that have never raised their hands to Christ. They've never sung a song to Christ. They have never been with other believers in their life, not even one that know Jesus. In fact, just a week and a half ago, I was sitting with a sheikh formally that had come to Jesus one year ago. And this is what happened. He came to Christ because he was going over to a neighbor's house to confront him because he was a Christian. He left his tent in the midst of the eastern part of Ethiopia along the Somali border where he was overseeing a mosque went to confront him, heard this man praying for him and praying for Muslims. He said, at that moment, anger filled my heart and I decided not to confront him but return to my tent. The next day, he says, I went back to confront him, heard him at the very same hour praying for me and praying for Muslims again. He said, I went back to my tent, fell asleep, had a dream, and I had a dream of Isa, which is the Arabic term for Jesus. And he said, my life was revolutionized. And today, this sheikh has now planted three churches, all of them former Muslims, working in the underground mosque. And when I asked him and said, when you lead people to Jesus, what do you say to them? And he said to me, I tell them, who can bring more power and healing to your life? A dead man or a live man? Isn't that amazing? It's amazing. And this is what's happening across Africa. And this is why our partnership, Pastor Jeremy, with Timber Creek is so meaningful to me. And I wanna give you a video, I wanna show you a video that will allow you to see one of my students who's named Bartholomew serving in Northern Cameroon and why, why these individuals are so important to be able to invest in for the future and that you'll have an opportunity to do that today. Let's show that. My name is Bartholomew, and this is Northern Cameroon, where you will find 15 people groups who have not yet been reached with the gospel. They have never heard his story, known his forgiveness, or witnessed his wonders. Instead, they have lived in darkness and in fear of death, always, for generations uncounted. They have names like the Shua, Bagara, Boduma, and Turku, and they are desperately lost. Daily, I live with two questions. How will they hear about Jesus if no one is sent to them? And how can one be sent without proper training? 
Here is the solution. My school. It is a Bible school for church planters. We are learning to plant new churches and make disciples. From this school, 100 of us go out to surrounding villages to plant new churches. Already, we have a harvest among some of the tribes. This is my church. It is in a village you won't find on any map. When I found it, there were no believers, only those who worshipped idols or followed Allah. I cried out to God, Here, this is the place. These are the people. Will you help me plant your church? God moved immediately. Look at them. Jesus has saved them. Some used to pray to idols or Allah. Now they serve Jesus. Even though they struggle in poverty and life is very hard, they feast on the goodness of God and the peace of knowing Jesus. Because of what I am learning in the church planting school, I can better minister to and disciple these people. But I have much more to learn. That's why our church planting school is so important to us in Northern Cameroon. Without this school, we could not train enough church planters to reach these 15 unreached tribes. We live on a great spiritual frontier in Cameroon. There is much to be done. So many villages need a witness of Jesus. Africa's Hope shares our church planting vision for Northern Cameroon. They promise to tell the churches in America about what is happening here. We say thank you. Your actions will help plant more churches. The best way to reach 15 people groups is to train and send more church planters like me. This is a journey worth taking. In Africa we say, travel alone and you will go fast. But travel together and we will go far. Let's go far together. I, Pastor Bartholomew, and these hundred others want to go reach the Korba, the Fulani, and many others. But we need your help. Will you help plant more churches among these people in Northern Cameroon? These are my heroes. These are individuals who are all in. They have heard God's voice, they have responded in faith, and with the little training they have, they go into some of the most difficult areas in the world and they successfully, sometimes at great cost, plant the church. This morning, I wanna take the next few minutes, the next 20 to 25 minutes, and I wanna elevate your thinking in regards to why you, and me should be able to be more engaged effectively in what God's called us to do in reaching our world for Christ. If we were to look at a map of the world, you'll notice that we live in a world today of 7.3 billion people, of incredible diverse world, made all of these people in God's image. In fact, did you know that one of the most significant missiological concepts in all of the Bible is that all of us, no matter who we are, where we come from, are made in his image. 
no matter the nationality or ethnicity. It doesn't matter your geographical location or the language that you speak. It doesn't matter your gender. It doesn't matter the color of your skin, your economic status, or the lack thereof. It means that every one of us, all of us, no one is excluded, is special. I want to tell you that there is something that needs to happen within all of us if we're going to actually be able to participate in God's mission more effectively. And what I'd like to do is speak to you just briefly this morning on God's mission and our lens. Now why is that important? Because you see, the Bible tells us from Genesis to Revelation that God has, uh, that has, God has actively been working redemptively throughout time to be able to redeem people to himself. And for that not just to be grace received, but that we in turn then position ourselves to be a people of blessing to the world. At Timber Creek, that's one of the things that you're learning to do. You're learning to be able to not only reach out locally, but to reach out globally that both are important, your Jerusalem and to the ends of the earth. You've probably heard Pastor Jeremy reference this throughout the, the history of his time at this church. That is absolutely essential for all of us. So what is it about God's mission and our lens? Well, you see, we view the world in certain ways and our lens has been distorted in some ways. It's been shaped in a way that we don't always see the world clearly, the way God sees it. You see, because of our volatility, the fallenness of our humanity, our sinfulness, we find that our lens has been distorted in some ways. And the truth is, is that when you look at the world, you may say and hear theoretically that all people are made in the image of God, but when it comes down to viewing the world, looking at the world, experiencing the world, sometimes what we know in our head and what we've heard at church comes into conflict with our experiences in the world because we see people and we see events and circumstances and we're not always sure that all people are made in the image of God because our experiences tell us that there's hurt and brokenness and conflict and pain and volatility but the truth is is that all people are made in his image and our lens of how we view the world is important it's critical it's absolutely essential that we view it as God views it and so there's three motivating factors that I want to talk about that should shape that lens. And if you were to ask me, as many people do, John, what motivates you to be able to participate in God's mission globally, these are the three motivating factors. The first one is what I like to call value. And why? Well, see, if it is true that all people are made in his image, whether they're aware of it, conscious of it or not, it means that every man, woman, and child are made in his image and that means that they are the object of God's love and desire to save. It means that no one is excluded. All people are included. See, it means that no matter my nationality, my ethnicity, the language that I speak, the geographical location I find myself in, it doesn't matter if I'm rich or poor, whether I have a great education or not, it doesn't matter what I've done for the good or the bad, whether I'm conscious of it or not. I am valuable to God and therefore I am the object of his love and desire to save. Hallelujah. So it doesn't matter, you see, whether I speak Timbuka or Chewa, whether it happened to speak in Goni or Swahili. And it doesn't matter whether I live in Dodoma or Ouagadougou or Dar es Salaam or Salima or whether I find myself in Abidjan 
It, it doesn't matter, you see, whether I'm bowing down in a mosque to pray towards Jerusalem and Tehran or find myself sleeping in a cardboard box between high-rise towers in downtown Chicago, or whether I find myself right here this morning listening to me at Timber Creek. And it doesn't matter. You see, it doesn't matter whether I enjoy in Sema of the maize made out of the made from the, the fields in Malawi or I happen to enjoy eating the, the meat that comes off of field mice in the field of Tanzania or whether I suck the head of a weird creature by a tribe in Louisiana. I'm made in his image and whether I'm conscious of it or not, he loves me and I'm the object of his love and desire to save. Are you with me? You see, value is absolutely essential for every one of us because there are times that when we know in our hearts that people are made in his image and we should reach out in a certain way, the truth is, is that for every one of us, we come into conflict on a daily basis because of the experiences we have in life. And whether those experiences are in the halls or classrooms of our schools or whether they happen to be on the factory floor, or with the employees that we have at our business, or with our employer, or with the person that lives across our street in our neighborhood, or a family member. The truth is, is that many times it's a tragedy when those experiences undermine what we know should shape our lens more clearly. And that is, is that God really has built within us an intrinsic value. And every single person that you're sitting beside today, including yourself, are valuable. That every one of us, whether we deserve it or not, there is a sense of value because we are special to God. And if God values the world, how much more should we value the world? But if value is important, the second, the second motivator may be even more important. And that is what I like to call capacity. Capacity. You see, if it is true that all people are made in the image of God and therefore they are the object of his love and desire to save, then it also is true that built within them, whether they're conscious of it or not, is the capacity to respond to the gospel when they first hear it. That means that no matter who I am and where I'm from, my nationality, my ethnicity, my cultural domain, the language that I speak, my gender, it doesn't matter that whether I'm conscious of it or not, whether I've been informed or not, that built within me, uniquely designed within every person, is the ability to say yes to the gospel. And while many people will say no, many people will say yes. You see, and this is absolutely essential for every one of us in this room because let's just be honest, right? I mean, value is wonderful. Value gives me goosebumps. Value can inspire me. But when I encounter the world around me and the experiences that I have on a daily basis, I lose sight of value. Value only takes me so far. But capacity, capacity takes it to another level. I mean, come on, let's be honest. I mean, why even come here this morning? Why turn on the lights? Why worship? Why sing? Why give? Why pray? Why? If you really didn't believe that every single person on planet Earth has built within them the ability to authentically embrace the gospel. 
Because if you had doubts, you probably wouldn't be here this morning. Because if we really didn't believe in our hearts that people could really honestly come to Christ, then there would be limitations on how much we participate. I mean, I'm only going to pray so much. I'm only going to give so much. I'm only going to go so far. I'm probably not going to walk across the street and, and relate to my neighbor. I'm probably not going to take the, the step of faith to open my mouth at a moment when I could speak into someone's life. I'm probably never going to move out of my comfort zone if I don't believe in capacity. Because if I don't think that you and you and you really have it within you, much less the person in Dodoma, Tehran, London, Abidjan can really come to Jesus, then I'm probably only going to go so far with Pastor Jeremy. But if I really believe in it, I'm all in. There's no limitation to my ability to give my life for the sake of the gospel. There is nothing that is holding me back from being all in. There is nothing that's going to limit my sense of devotion, my sense of allegiance, my ability to truly give everything that I have. Because if it really is true that everybody, no matter who they are, can really come to know Christ, then let's do everything we can within our power to make that come true. Hallelujah. Capacity is the driver that really allows us to take the steps of faith. It's what here at Timber Creek allows you to go from dream to dream to dream, to never cease, to never be, to never be dissuaded or distracted or discouraged or to think that something is beyond you as a congregation because you always want to be able to move according to what you know God has already designed people to do and that's to respond fully that's why we're all in I remember that it wasn't long when we were into our into a training period in our school that we had three Pakistani men come and be able to serve with us and study for a period of time in Malawi, Africa, where we had started a training uh, program on the master's level for people all across Africa, parts of Asia, including Canadians and Americans to come and study to earn an intercultural studies degree, to be able to truly be equipped to serve in cross-cultural environments, primarily in very resistant Islamic areas. And during that time, Saeed came to study. And when he came to study, he stayed through the entire program. He was awarded his degree, incredibly bright. When he graduated, he went back to northern Pakistan, which is controlled, controlled by radical Islamic tribes and, and began to preach the gospel. He planted a church of over 200 new believers that had come to faith from the Islamic background and began to disciple them. And one day, one day as he was ministering to them on a Sunday morning in a very poor edifice where men were sitting on one side and women on the ground on the other with the children in the front, the religious police came in and do, did what they do. They took Saeed, they put him on his back right in front of his people on this dirt ground that was the floor of this church, drug him out by his legs to humiliate him in front of his people, put fear in their lives. They put him outside where a mob had assembled and began to put 
to beat him in his back, kick him in his gut. He was so bloodied from his head, it was so swollen that he wasn't moving anymore. And when the mob finally got over their moment of inspiration, they dissipated and two men, only two, that he had discipled came and took care of his body. And when they picked him up in the middle of that street, they found him still breathing took him to a hospital down in the southern part of the country, a larger city, where he stayed for 60 days. And when Saeed got out, you know what he did? He took his wife and his two children and took the train right back up to that village and got out and started over and planted the church again. And he's still there today. That's because... He believes in capacity. Because let's be honest, why would Saeed ever go back to that village, a village that he had the right to hate, a village that he would just say, let them go to hell. But instead, he literally gets to the point in which he takes his family back to the same people that tried to kill him. And why? Not just because of value. He needed more. Capacity. Because if 200 can come to Jesus, the whole village can come to Jesus. You see, and that's what should drive you. Because there are people that you have in your own lives, your grandchildren that have abandoned the faith that you hold dear. The uncle that you've prayed for for years and you just almost give up on. The people that you've worked with and shared your testimony, it seems like they don't want anything to do with the Jesus thing. The individuals that you care about deeply where you just get almost jaded to the point in which you don't even want to try anymore. But this is what happens. You go beyond value and you embrace capacity knowing that they have built within them, whether they are aware of it or not, the ability to truly come to faith. See, for all of us in this room, these are absolutely central questions. It absolutely matters to all of us. At least it should. I won't go into all the story, but I will tell you that when we first moved to Malawi, there was lots of volatility in the area. And one day when our middle son was very, very sick, he was a brittle diabetic, four injections a day. He came to a point in which we came close to burying him in Malawi. I mean, it was that serious. We couldn't stabilize him. We tried. It was well beyond our capacity. And uh, we couldn't get out on certain days in those periods. Planes only came in and out on certain days. The country has changed radically today. It's developed much more today. A medical doctor happened to come into the country and was practicing for a short time from Europe and called Cheryl. Got her on the phone and said, this is who I am. He introduced himself. He said, if you can get your middle son over to me as quickly as you can. He said, I will try to do my best to stabilize him. His sugar would not register on the blood monitor. We were desperate and we knew we couldn't get him out. Cheryl puts him in the back of our speed of light vehicle, one o'clock in the afternoon, 
drives up into this little edifice in front of this edifice where he's practicing medicine. And she helps him out of the vehicle because he has lost muscle mass. Very weak. He really needs assistance to walk. And as they begin to make their way to this, inside of this medical office, two men with guns walk up. They become violent with her. And I won't go into all the story just to say that by the time it was over and she was able to plead with John John to be able to run into the medical office, the last thing he saw was turning around and seeing his mother abducted and taken away by these two men that were very armed and very dangerous and quite violent and driving away. And in the middle of all of that, there was a sense of despair. I mean, in the midst of it, I didn't know what to do. We were driving across the city just trying to find out if we could cross them, finding where they were going to cross across the border into the DRC. We had no idea what to do. And we wouldn't know what to do if we would have crossed them. But what do you do? You do what you just, whatever you can. People are praying. They're seeking the Lord. They had good reason because there were reasons why these men were feared because they had already killed individuals and harmed them from earlier abductions, left their bodies. And Cheryl's in the midst of this car and she says, I'm so traumatized, I don't know what to do. And she says she even remembers looking down and seeing her body shaking uncontrollably, having an outer body experience and trying to even force her hands down into her lap to stabilize herself. But you know, and she said, with the man in front that was in charge screaming and yelling, wanting to know this and that with questions, trying to evade the roadblocks of police throughout the country, she said, I didn't recognize it, but I was praying. And she says, with the fear that had overcome me, knowing I would never probably see my, my sons and my husband again, she said, I was preparing for whatever they were going to do to me and then leave my body. Hopefully someone would recover it. And she said, I began to just pray. And when I began to pray, I prayed the name of Jesus. And she said, before I knew it, she said, I was praying to the point in which these men were hearing me. And all of a sudden, the man in front, in his nature, began to scream and say, what did you say? And she said, sir, she said, whatever happens today, whatever you do, don't forget the name of Jesus. And at that moment, he pulled over to the side of the road when the dust cleared he demanded for her to get out and says, I don't ever want to see you again. And I know where you live. I know where your family lives. If you say anything, we will kill you. And all of a sudden they sped off and the gang behind them in another vehicle followed them. Well, you can imagine that went from the worst day of our life to the best day of our life because John later was stabilized as well and God intervened. Hallelujah. But the reason I tell you that story is really because of this. It was later that day that six of our executives out of the Malawi church came to me and these Bantu men stood around me and said, John, you may need to take your family out of the country. It's become quite dangerous at this point. They know who you are. And they were right. There were other issues that took place, things that we will not go into and describe for you. And I remember the night staying up and you're listening to everything you can. Every noise that takes place. I remember coming back and sitting with my children, all three of the boys and Cheryl and going one by one in each one of them, including John John, saying, no way, Dad, we cannot leave. And then, of course, with Cheryl, giving her a moment to process, 
to say if we need to leave, we will leave. And her saying, John, we cannot leave. And I remember a couple of days later walking into this office with those same six executives and these bond two men standing around me who today have become very, very close. I've married their children. My, my sons call all of them uncle. The country they were raised in. And coming to the point in which saying to them, brothers, we cannot leave, we will not leave. And all of a sudden, tears began to flow down their eyes and the leader of the church at that time who is very close to our family looked at me and he said, now we know how much you love us. And all of a sudden, it was like the world changed. Well, it's not that it got easier on a daily basis on certain issues. It's just that the relationships became so profound. And do you know why we stayed? It wasn't because we were brave or needed a good missionary story. The truth is, we were traumatized. It was ugly. There was nothing rosy about it. There was no background music playing, I can assure you. The reason we stayed, and Cheryl will tell you this, is not just because of value, but because of capacity. You see, I had had students that had literally been chased out of villages at that time that I had trained with their babies in their arms only to return back to those same villages that threw stones at them to successfully go back, plant churches, and then literally the entire communities are radically changed. And their teacher wasn't going to run. You see, the decisions that you and I make are absolutely essential and most of them boil down to value and capacity, or at least our belief in them. But if these are important, the third one is probably even more important, and this is what I like to call significance, because this is really where it all leads. And this is why we're here this morning. Every single one of us in this room, this is what it boils down to. You see, because the truth is, is that if all people are made in his image and they are the object of his love and desire to save, and that means that whether people are aware of it or not, no matter who they are, they have built within them they are designed to have the capacity to authentically embrace Christ, then it also means that people also are positioned by Christ not just to be receivers of the gospel, but to be givers of the gospel. That they can actually represent and participate fully in God's redemptive plan. It means that every single one of you in this room was designed not just to receive personal salvation so you could wait until the moment where you get to enjoy heaven for eternity, but for God to do something in your life significant so that you can reproduce yourself over and over and over in Lufkin and around the world for the glory of Christ. That's what it's about. Let me just show you some people that have become significant in my life and to many, many others. The standing beside me is Michael Kaliwa and Ruben Amdala and Arnold Bonda and George Chawaya. These are men that came under my ministry. Men that at one point did not know Christ at all. Amdala, right there on the very end with the stripes and the big smile on his face. Do you see him? Did you know that Amdala means that he was born as a Yao Muslim? To be Yao is to be Muslim. To be Muslim is to be Yao, they say. 
He didn't know Christ at all, had never even heard one time a meaningful understanding of the gospel until later when he was a young man, someone believed he had value. Someone believed he had the capacity, even though he was a Muslim, to come to Jesus. And when he heard the gospel, Reuben said, my heart and mind exploded with life. (laughs) That's quite a statement. And he said, not only did I feel called to Christ, he said, I felt devoted to being able to follow him in ministry. And he came to the Bible school and afterwards planted four churches and now works at the same school where we were for all those years and trained ministers. He's now doing that. Significance. Arnold Bonda in that red t-shirt with that big smile. You talk about full of life. But Arnold was raised in a highly animistic environment. He was literally identified within his tribe to be later a Sananga, which in Chichewa for us means a witch doctor, and involved himself in practices I can't share in this room. And when someone took the opportunity, despite the darkness that seemed to be able to, to just blanket his life, that that characterized who he was. Arnold said something inside of me, it just woke up. And he said, all of a sudden, he said, "I, I had communion with God without going through all of these practices that were evil. And he said, and I sensed a call to ministry. And he came to the school and we equipped Arnold. And today he's planted six churches, all of them that run over 600 members each. And now, well, he seems serves at the same school, reproducing himself into others. Oh, if I could go through this list and tell you about Michael Kaliwa, who was a hard man, and now today, because of God's grace in his life, who did not know Jesus, with his wife, serves throughout the country in ministries of compassion to his own people and other tribes, who if you want a man to love on you in times of crisis, Michael is your guy. Significance. You see, and the truth is, is that when I look around this room into the eyes of each one of you, what I find is, is people that God has uniquely designed to have intrinsic value. He has designed you to have capacity to respond to him authentically with your whole heart and hold nothing back. And that's why I'm assuming you're here this morning. But what's greater than all of that is being able to recognize that your, that your significance is not grounded in self-esteem it's rather grounded in your esteem of Christ and what he wants to do in your life because if he can get that part of you where you are all in then not only will you invest graciously lavishly generously here you'll do it across the world When I flew into Miami, I received a text that Saeed had been beaten in that street and by that time had already went back two months later into that village to start over. After the conference that I was speaking at, I flew into Malawi and I flew in just in time to begin a new class where I was teaching for a week period 16 individuals Bantu Africans 
and in the back, Gideon Bonda, 240 pounds, all Gideon, stands up, 6'3", and says, Dr. Easter, can I say something? And I said, yes. He says, we've heard of what happened to Saeed. And you see, they cared because they had studied with him. Saeed was in the class before them. They had known him. They had eaten with him. They had prayed with him. And Gideon, with tears rolling down his face, said, I was born with very little. I have very little. Send me to the hard places. I'll step into Saeed's shoes. And before he could finish, the young man beside him reached up and took Gideon's arm, pulled himself up, looked at me with this intensity in his face, then looked at Gideon and said, no. Then looked at me and said, send me. He said, you see, I was born with nothing. I have very little, but I will give everything if you'll send me. And one by one, with that exception, all 16 said, send me to the hard places. And we sang a song in Chichewa, and this is the song, Mulungu, Angate, Angate, Angate Mulungu, Angate Sale Perasona. Mulungu angate, angate, angate mulungu, angate sale perasona. God can do anything, anytime, anywhere. God can do anything. He never fails. They were all in. They weren't holding anything back. And to this day, all of them, to my knowledge, are still all in. So my question to you is, what's it going to take, really, for you to be all in? How devoted are you to walk across the street to put your arm around your neighbor, to give more, to share more, to pray more, to invest your life in Lufkin and beyond for the sake of the gospel so that all of us made in his image who have capacity can find divine significance and this is why our relationship between Timber Creek and Africa is so important and together well together we can be all in Lord in Jesus name I thank you for this amazing opportunity I have to be able to share with my brothers and sisters the amazing calling you've placed upon our lives the mantle that rests upon all of us not just 
professional ministers. But everyone in this room that are called by your name, that have received grace to become givers of grace. So that whether it's here in Lufkin or whether it's in Africa or Europe or in Eurasia or Latin America or the Oceania of our world, that Lord, that we are, that we are all in. That we are giving everything we have to promote and to participate in your mission. But to do that, Lord, the lens of how we view the world, that lens, it needs to be able to be shaped by your spirit so that as we engage, we're not jaded, we're not deluded, that we're not wounded, but rather that we are all embracing of a world around us that so desperately needs the hope of the gospel. And Lord, I pray right now that if there is anyone that's here this morning that maybe, maybe it's them. Maybe they are here and they have never stepped into a position of making the decision of being all in for you, with you, because of you. And I pray, Lord, that if there's anyone here that they even sense the nudging of your Holy Spirit just speaking to them because they're not in right relationship with you, that they've never made the decision to truly embrace you, to use that capacity that you've given them based on the value you have for them to truly come to faith, to receive you as Savior and Lord of their life, to surrender everything they have to you. I pray that right now at this very moment that they will begin to confess, to reach out, to embrace you, and never look back. And I pray for all of us in this room that we will find greater significance because we are responding to your call to surrender everything in our lives for the sake of your gospel and for the sake of others made in your image so that all that have value and capacity will find significance in you.